1: This program is about unlocking your superpower. And your superpower, believe it or not, is thinking for yourself. Not an easy thing to do in this day and age. There's a lot of misinformation. No, I mean real misinformation designed to keep you from the truth. And I want to make clear, I'm not the source of truth. I'm not the person who hands it to you. Here you go, child. You may have some truth. Now run along and play with it. I'm here to encourage you to become the kind of fearless explorer who can go after the truth on your own terms and trust yourself to find it, rather than sitting there like a baby bird with your mouth open, you know, squawking for someone to come spoon-feed it to you. So if, uh, if these conditions and these terms are acceptable, please click agree, and let's, uh, let's move forward. Actually, I'm just very happy to have you aboard today. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, lifesavingfood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, College.org, Sewing and Quilting Center.com, and Dixie Chiropractic, who you can visit at DixieChiro.com. So I don't want to start with bad news here, at least I don't want to start out on a sour note, but uh, you've probably looked around and went, Wow, the economic markets are uh, not looking real good at the moment. Okay, that's reality. We might as well face it. We might as well see things as they are. I'm going to spend some time this hour talking about the economic reckoning, which is beginning to become apparent even to the people who don't really want to acknowledge it. It's something that's been coming for a long, long time. And I have some wonderful commentators I'm going to share with you, including Jeffrey Tucker and Dan Sanchez, who can talk to us about what exactly is happening, what are some of the contributing factors, and so forth. Before we get there, though, I think in order to better understand the situation that we find ourselves in, we're going to first have to have an awareness of how did we get here? What are some of the key turning points that placed us on this current path? Got an article here from Chris Sullivan. This was published on LewRockwell.com. Dates that helped destroy America. And this is just kind of a quick down and dirty run through of some important historical dates. Now, you may have encountered these in your history classes in, you know, school or in college. But these are some of the most relevant dates that have set us on the path where we find ourselves at this moment. So, Chris Sullivan starts with April 9th, 1865. This is the date when General Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. Now, regardless of where one comes down on the subject of the war between the states, one fact is undeniable, and that is Abraham Lincoln seriously dismantled the Jeffersonian model of federalism in America. Lincoln ignored the concept of free and independent states when he declared war on a nation that seceded from the Union. The newly formed Confederate States of America had lawfully separated from the United States in accord with the Constitution of 1789. Now, that mattered not to Lincoln, for he ordered an invasion and destruction of this new country under the guise of preserving the Union. And this wasn't Lincoln's job to preserve the Union. That job belonged to the states. It's probably also worth pointing out, as long as two states remained in the Union, the Union would still endure. Just something to consider. Nonetheless... Chris Sullivan says, ever since Lincoln's presidency, virtually every battle that free men have fought for the principles of limited government, state sovereignty, personal liberty, etc., has stemmed directly from Lincoln's usurpation of power and subjugation and forced union of what used to be free and independent states. Recognize that phrase from the Declaration of Independence? In fact, the philosophical battles being waged today regarding every encroachment upon liberty and state autonomy by our federal government have their roots in Lincoln's autocracy. So Chris Sullivan wastes no time in getting right to, this is one of the big contributing factors. Next time you're singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, you might even reflect on this a bit. The next date is July 9th, 1868. This is the date when the 14th Amendment was ratified. And this amendment codified into law what Lincoln had forced at Bayonet Point from 1861 to 1865. Until then, people were deemed citizens of their respective states. The Constitution nowhere referred to the people as U.S. citizens. It only recognized the citizens of each state. Notice that citizenship was only recognized among the several states, not among people living in non-state territories. Until the 14th Amendment, people were citizens of each state, Article 4, Section 2, Paragraph 1. Now, the 14th Amendment created a whole new class of persons, that being citizens of the United States. And this false notion of one nation overturned the Jeffersonian principle that America was a confederated republic, a voluntary union of states. Next date. You may recognize this one. February 3rd, 1913. This is the date when the 16th Amendment was ratified and the personal income tax and IRS was instituted. This was a flagrant repudiation of freedom principles says Chris Sullivan what began as a temporary measure to support the war of Northern aggression became a permanent income revenue stream for an unconstitutional ever-growing central government and the financial basis for future government spending and it was followed shortly thereafter by the date of April 8th 1913 this is the date when the 17th amendment was ratified Now, this amendment overturned the right of state legislatures to elect their own senators and replaced it with a direct popular vote. Now, this was another serious blow against state sovereignty. Chris Sullivan says the framers of the Constitution desired that the influence and power in Washington, D.C. be kept as close to the people and the states as possible. For example, the number of representatives in the House of Representatives was to be decided by a limited number of voters. And in the original Constitution, the ratio of the people of the several states, deciding their House member, could not exceed one for every 30,000, Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3. And when it came to the U.S. Senate, the framers recognized the authority of each state legislature to select its own senators, thereby keeping power and influence from aggregating in Washington, D.C., The 17th Amendment, he says, seriously damaged the influence and power of the states by forcing them to elect their U.S. senators by popular vote. Senators who answered to state legislators, each answering to a limited number of voters, were much more accountable to the citizens of the several states than those who were elected by a large number, most states now numbering into the millions of people. So for all intents and purposes, U.S. senators are more like mini-presidents than representatives of sovereign states. And senators today are less representative of the people and more representative of Washington, D.C. Beautifully put. That's what the 17th Amendment did. It shifted their loyalty from the states that they would represent and the legislatures that would hold them accountable because they were the ones who sent them there. And it shifted that loyalty to the federal government. And that was a major nail in the coffin of the republic. Next date, another very recognizable one here, December 23rd, 1913. This is the date when the Federal Reserve Act was passed. Now, the act placed the oversight of America's financial matters into the hands of a cabal of private international bankers who have completely destroyed the constitutional principles of sound money and, for the most part, free enterprise. No longer would the marketplace, meaning private consumption, thrift, growth, etc., be the determinant of the U.S. economy and a currency backed by actual gold, which is what freedom is all about. But now a private, unaccountable, international banking cartel would have total power and authority to micromanage for their own private parochial purposes, America's financial sector. So the takeaway here is virtually every recession, depression, and downturn this country has ever had, including the Great Depression was the direct result of the Fed's manipulation of the financial markets. Just in case we need to spell it out for you, they're doing it again today. 1913 was not a good year for the United States or for freedom. So I'm going to tap the brakes here because we're coming up quickly on a commercial break. But again, this is Chris Sullivan and dates that helped destroy America. Now, I understand this is going to cause, you know, a little bit of discomfort, maybe some serious cognitive dissonance, particularly for people who have been raised to revere Abraham Lincoln as, you know, the great emancipator, and, you know, he's the one who saved the union. And I, well, I know some people cringe when they hear, well, the war between the states or the war of northern aggression. I can make that cringe about five times harder by saying I think even better would be to to call it Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union, because I think that. Is, is probably the purest expression of what happened back during the early 1860s. Now, that doesn't mean that the Confederates were right. They were correct to do what they were doing in terms of, you know, the reasons that they gave, which included, among other things, the right to decide for themselves whether to keep slavery. But they were right from the moral standpoint that their states had voluntarily joined the Union and could voluntarily leave the Union. And it was aggression on the part of the Union... That forced the issue and unfortunately converted everybody into a different kind of slave, a slave to a centralized national government. We'll be back in just a few moments.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Got some more hard truths spoken gently straight ahead. Let me start by uh, recognizing one of my sponsors, that being lifesavingfood.com. I don't know if if you've been paying attention like I have to the different uh, food processing facilities, but I'm aware of at least one, maybe two more. Actually, it's it's two more just in the last week that have uh, been either damaged by fire or shut down. One of them was a large food processing facility, and I want to say this was in, uh, I think it was in Minnesota. All I know is it's one that does frozen pizzas, and so that kind of got my attention. That's a tragedy. Also, another—the uh, ba- there was a baby formula factory, I believe, in uh, Michigan, shut down once again. I don't know the reasons why, but my point is just simply this. The food supply situation is not getting better. It's getting more complicated. There are a number of obstacles that are, that are growing larger by the day. If you don't have something set aside for a rainy day, this is a really good time to start thinking about it. Lifesavingfood.com can help you with that. All right, let's get back to Chris Sullivan's article about dates that help destroy America. How can you appreciate where to go from here if you can't appreciate how you got here in the first place? So let's learn from some of the mistakes that have been made. The next date is June 26th, 1945. This is when the United Nations Charter was signed and America joined the push for global government. Now, Chris Sullivan says it's no accident that America has not fought a constitutionally declared war since we entered the U.N. And coincidentally, neither have we won one, nor will we ever win another one as long as the U.N. exists. it has got a good point. These uh, police actions or... Otherwise, uh, conflicts that the U.S. finds itself in or chooses to place itself in are more open-ended. They're not a, a declared war that's fought to a conclusive, you know, unconditional surrender. Sure it has cost a lot of uh, lives and treasure, but, okay, that's a subject for another time. Chris Sullivan says, further, it, furthermore, it's America's involvement in the United Nations that has spawned this pathetic push For a new world order that George H.W. Bush, Henry Kissinger, Tony Blair, Walter Cronkite, George Soros, Klaus Schwab, etc. have all talked about so much. Now he says the United Nations is an anti-American institution that works aggressively and constantly against the interests and principles of the United States. But it's an institution that's ensconced in the American political infrastructure. Like a cancer, the U.N. eats away at our liberties and values and both major political parties in Washington, D.C. are equally culpable in allowing it to exert so much influence over our country. K okay, May 14th, 1948, this is the next date. Oh, I think I just saw a couple of people wince when they heard that. This is the date that the Zionist state of Israel was created. Nothing has blinded America's so-called conservatives and religious groups like the advent of the modern state of Israel. Now this faux Israel has nothing to do with the Israel described in the Bible. It's a devilish counterfeit nation whose intelligence services have penetrated nearly every major country and have instigated assassinations and government overthrows. The Mossad, which is the state's intelligence service, and Shin Bet, the state security service, are joined at the hip with the CIA. Since the creation of the Zionist state of Israel in 1948, Nothing has influenced and even dominated American politics, government, business, especially banking, and mainstream media and entertainment industry, and more, all for the worse. You do see the distinction here, right? This is not uh, just strictly, you know, this is not going after, you know, Jews. This is not anti Semitic. But the modern state of Israel is quite a different thing from the tribe of Israel. And I know a lot of people, especially I know really some hardcore conservatives, have a very difficult time keeping this clear in their minds. Now, look, I used to be very Zionist in my thinking. I was one of those who, yeah, well, Israel always, you know, it's God's people, it's God's government. No, Israel or, you know, the the tribe of Israel is, I believe, God's people. I believe those, those biblical passages, and I think that that is absolutely true. I don't know so much about the nation state, and, I, and all I'll say about this is, you know, if, if you can't make that distinction, you know, it, it, it perhaps merits a little bit closer look. I would strongly recommend a book by a Christian Palestinian, but a pastor, by the name of Elias Shakur. It's called Blood Brothers. And he describes what it was like in 1948 when he and his family, who had been for generations on their land in what is now modern Israel, but was then known as Palestine, Palestine were basically dispossessed of their olive orchards and of their land and brutally kicked off the land by soldiers when the state of Israel was was created. Now, he's not writing because he's angry and he's not uh, you know thirsting for revenge. He's actually been a peacemaker. But my Zionist thinking went out the window upon reading his story and realizing, wow, there are people fighting over there for things that they, they don't even understand. They've been fighting for so many generations, killing each other, and uh, there's there's a lot of ugliness there that gets whitewashed at least in, in the way that uh, that our media tends to cover it and the way that our politicians tend to cozy up to it okay couple more quick dates here august 16th 1954 <clears throat> this is the date the infamous the infamous johnson amendment to the 501c3 tax code was signed into law by president dwight david eisenhower now this review from regent university accurately summarizes the johnson amendment Quote, the amendment appears to be nothing more than an attempt by a powerful senator, Lyndon Johnson, from Texas, to silence political opponents that he feared were hurting his chances for reelection. Johnson knew how to work the system and inserted his amendment into a large tax overhaul bill. There was no referral to a committee for further study and hearings. There was no legislative analysis of the effect of the amendment on tax-exempt organizations. And there was certainly no attempt to understand the effect that the amendment might have on constitutional rights, especially those of churches and other religious organizations. The Johnson Amendment plainly targets speech because it prohibits statements that are published or distributed. Yet Congress made no attempt to reconcile the Johnson Amendment with the First Amendment. There was absolutely no discussion at all of the First Amendment. And the Johnson Amendment simply sailed through Congress as a small addition to a popular tax overhaul bill, end quote. Bottom line, nothing has done more to gag America's pulpits and churches, like the repressive speech restrictions of the 501c3 nonprofit tax status instituted under the Johnson Amendment. And nothing more has nothing has done more to destroy America than putting a gag on those churches and muting those pulpits. Next, we have June 25, 1962, and June 17, 1963. These are the dates that the Supreme Court removed prayer and the Bible, or Bible reading, from public schools. Now, if you think about it, uh, since that time our forebears settled this this continent, children had been free to pray and read the scriptures in their various schools. We're talking about 300 years of history. Longer, if you go back to Europe and the post-Roman Empire. And of course, state legislatures and the vast majority, if not all, of municipal and county governmental meetings still open their sessions in prayer, as do the U.S. House and Senate and even the U.S. Supreme Court. But this same liberty is denied to the students of America's public schools. No question that this that America has not recovered from these two horrific Supreme Court decisions. And since the federal government expelled God from our public schools, it has been methodically expelling God from virtually all of our public life couple of other dates, uh, November 22nd, 1963. You probably recognize the significance of that one. October 22nd, 1968. That's uh, when President uh, Johnson signed the Gun Control Act of 68. January 22nd, 1973. The U.S. Supreme Court issuing the Roe v. Wade decision. And of course, December 8th, 1993. This was the uh, day that Bill Clinton signed... The job-killing, manufacturing industry gutting anything but free trade bill, NAFTA. Now, you can check these all out for yourself, and I I wish that you would. I'll have a link in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. These are dates that destroyed America. Chris Sullivan has compiled them. It's a pretty comprehensive list, and it really does provide some great background on how we arrived at the path that we are currently on. As far as the path forward, well... We still have some decisions to make. But at least we can have the benefit of learning from past mistakes and hopefully not repeating them.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. want to give a
1: shout-out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. You can visit their website at DixieChiro.com. This is especially important information for anyone who's dealing with neuropathy. If you know someone who is uh, trying to work with that kind of pain, check out the $99 Calmare Treatment Plus Massage. Again, that's at DixieChiro.com. Bulging herniated discs, yes, they can help you there as well. Here's a $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. And if you have suffered car accident injuries, again, Dr. Ward Wagner from Dixie Chiropractic would love to help you. And chances are very good that uh, you can do this with no out-of-pocket costs, thanks to some of the insurance laws. So if you want to find out more, go to DixieChiro.com. When you make your appointment with them, please let them know that you are contacting them because you heard about them on this program. So, as I mentioned at the opening of the hour, there's a, there's a reckoning that's taking place right now in the market. I actually have a good friend. Give a shout-out to my friend, the C-Train, for, uh, for uh, first of all, being my friend. And, and secondly, I, he's the guy I turn to when I want the no-crap, you know, take on what's happening with the markets. And when I hear him sigh, oh, this is tough. I know, it's it's. It's a bad time, so I don't mean to spread gloom, but I think we we have a pretty tough situation in front of us, and it's going to get tougher. And I know that's not encouraging. You maybe you want reassurance: oh, this is all going to work out, and I think everything will work out eventually. But uh, there are consequences that that are coming to 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 pass, and they're not going to be avoided. The can has been kicked down the road about as far as it can. Dan Sanchez, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education points out that markets must have their day of reckoning. And the longer the Fed postpones that reckoning, the worse that reckoning is going to be. He says a worse-than-expected inflation report released last Friday spooked the Federal Reserve into contemplating steeper-than-expected interest rate hikes on Monday. By the way, they did it. They they made a pretty good jump yesterday. And that, in turn, spooked traders into a stock sell-off, driving the S&P 500 into a bear market that same day and that in turn is spooking everyone about the prospect of an imminent recession and the fed just confirmed investor fears when it approved the largest interest rate increase since 1994 and signaled it would continue lifting rates this year at the most rapid pace in decades that's according to the Wall Street Journal as of yesterday so scary as the prospects may be the economy is long overdue for a crash and the more we postpone that day of reckoning, Dan Sanchez says, the day the worse that day is going to the worse that day of reckoning is going to be. Indeed, in a sense, a reckoning is, is exactly what an economic bust is. And understanding why can help us understand what and who drives the boom-bust business cycle. So in the Christian tradition, the day of reckoning refers to the last judgment, a prophesied time when everyone's good deeds and misdeeds in life will be accounted for with eternal reward and punishment apportioned accordingly. Now the phrase is also a literary application of a financial term. To reckon is to count, or to calculate, to estimate a quantity. And historically speaking, a reckoning meant a settling of financial accounts. In the boom-bust business cycle, an economic bust or recession, is a reckoning in that it's a correction of the distortions of the preceding boom or bubble a mass recalculation of profit and loss that reconciles the markets with economic reality. Now, in the American economy, the distortions of the boom bubble are the result of the Fed creating new money and dumping it into the loan and capital markets in order to stimulate the economy. The new money bids up the prices of capital goods and future financial flows in general relative to the prices of present consumption goods and services. Now, this is manifested in a drop in the interest rate and it leads, or misleads rather, entrepreneurs into investing more resources into production without a commensurate decrease in present consumption of resources. In other words, without a commensurate increase in savings. This means the economy's scarce resources are then overcommitted, so there's not enough for all the boom-time production projects to actually be completed. This overextended, artificially stimulated economy may be pleasant for the present, you know, for investors, for workers, consumers, and for the government. But it will inevitably incur great pain down the road. Dan Sanchez says, Ludwig von Mises, the great Austrian economist who first described this process, declared this, or compared rather the situation to a house builder with an inflated inventory of building materials. Perhaps he only has enough resources to build a bungalow, but misled by his falsified figures, he lays the groundwork for a mansion. And the point here is, inevitably, the builder's plans must collide with reality. At some point in the building process, he must realize that his project, his project is unsustainable. He must take stock and come to a reckoning of how much he really has. Now, it'll be a rude awakening, to be sure. But the sooner it happens, the fewer the resources the builder will squander, not only his labor, but any materials that can't be salvaged from the partially built mansion. If his day of reckoning is delayed too long, by the time he course corrects, his malinvestments may have impoverished him so much that he no longer has enough to build a bungalow and must settle for a shed. So similarly, an economy stimulated by interest rates being driven down, not by an increase in saving, but by the Fed's money pumping, must inevitably collide with the limits of scarcity. So economic reality can be falsified, but it cannot be defied. The economy's entrepreneurs must realize that not all of their projects can be completed with the saved resources available. And this realization generally happens when the Fed finally eases up on the money pumping, as it has started to do recently, allowing relative prices and thus interest rates to recalibrate to better reflect the actual rate of saving. The more realistic pricing paradigm brings about a reckoning, a massive do-over of profit and loss accounting. Projected profits turn to losses on a mass scale, revealing malinvestments for what they are. That's what's known as a crash, bust, recession, or depression. Now, Dan Sanchez says, look, a recession is just a revelation of economic truth. And he says, it's a painful revelation, to be sure. But just as with Mises' house builder, the sooner it is allowed to fully happen, the better. The longer the Fed postpones the economy's day of reckoning by continuing to falsify economic c- calculation with its money pumping, the more resources will be squandered, the more civilization will be impoverished, and the more excruciating the inevitable reckoning will be. So he says we must eventually reckon with economic reality anyway, so there's no better day to start than today. I know, it's it's not going to make you feel better, right? This is hard truth. This is hard reality. But it's better to face it and to uh, chart a course from that point forward than to continue to try to delude ourselves. No, we can keep doing this. The Fed can keep interest rates artificially low. In other words, make credit easily available so people can borrow money and and either spend or misspend it, you know, at, at their whim. We can do this forever, but it turns out we can't. Nor can they print money and inject money into the money supply without uh, correspondingly watering down the purchasing power of every single dollar in the money supply. Look, I'm not an economist. I won't pretend to be one. But it makes sense to me, and if, and if a simple guy like me can see this, surely you can see this as well. This is one of the reasons why, if, if you don't understand what the Federal Reserve is, or I guess more importantly even what it isn't, You'll never really understand how we got here. Think about this. If a banking cartel can expand credit, make it very easy, you know, artificially make it more available to people, including irresponsible people or people who don't know what they're doing business-wise. That's going to invite a lot of people to take out loans to borrow. I'm going to start a business and, and, you know, they expand credit. It's easy to get money. So people start businesses. They build those businesses, which is a good thing. But if it's done artificially, if the interest rates are so low that anybody here, can you fog this mirror? Yep, you're approved for that loan. It creates risk. And when the, the entity, we'll say that banking cartel, decides at a later point to contract that credit or to make it harder to obtain, what happens? Suddenly it's harder to borrow money. Those business lines of credit dry up. And when the business can't make the payments on its loans, who gets to take the collateral? The collateral usually being their actual real property, right? Their equipment and so forth. The same bank that gave them the loan. Are you getting the picture here? The people who expanded and contracted the credit, that being that banking cartel. All they ask you to do when you take out those loans is put up some collateral, which they will happily collect when they contract the credit and you can't make your payments. They can't lose. That's the dirty little secret of this uh, federal reserve and and fractional reserve banking. Now, that's not offering a solution, so more or less, I guess I'm just complaining, yeah, that's exactly what's going on here. But it's been going on for well over a hundred years. Look at the purchasing power of the dollar compared to uh, what it was. Something ain't right. And you already know inflation is eating away at every dollar that you have socked away in the bank or stuffed under your mattress. Kind of makes you wonder what can be done about it, doesn't it?
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for tuning in today.
1: want to thank HSLAMO.com for being one of my sponsors. I'm working very hard, by the way, to twist Spencer Worthington's arm to get him back on this program. He's the founder of HSL Ammo. And in addition to creating wonderful new and remanufactured ammunition, he's also one of my favorite people in terms of uh, this guy has a wealth of knowledge on financial responsibility. And I guess it comes from building a business from the ground up. He's uh, he has had triumphs and failures of his own, but he's got his head on straight and some really great advice for people who might find themselves struggling with money. So I will continue to work on getting him back on the show for another guest stint. I think you'll appreciate what he has to share. In the meantime, you can show him some appreciation by purchasing some ammo from HSL Well, continuing on with uh, the economy and what we see happening there are a lot of factors that have contributed to our economic meltdown. Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute points out that the meltdown that we're seeing right now has its roots in lockdown. And here's the explanation. He says Americans', Americans capacity for denial is truly a thing to behold. For at least 27 months, it should have been obvious that we were headed for a grave crisis. Not only that, the crisis was already here in March of 2020. But for weird reasons, some people, many people, imagined that governments could just shut down an economy and then turn it back on without consequence. And yet here we are. Historians of the future, if there are any intelligent ones among them, will surely be aghast at our astounding ignorance. Congress enacted decades of spending in just two years and figured it would be fine. The printing presses at the Fed ran at full tilt. No one cared to do anything about the trade snarls or supply chain breakages And here we are. Our elites had two years to fix this unfolding disaster. They did nothing. Now we face terrible, grim, grueling, exploitative inflation. At the same time, we're plunging into recession again. And people sit around wondering, what the heck happened? Well, he says, I'll tell you what happened. The ruling class destroyed the world we knew. It happened right before our eyes. And here we are. Last week, the stock market reeled on the news that the European Central Bank will attempt to do something about the inflation-wrecking markets. So, of course, the financial markets panicked, like an addict who can't find his next hit of heroin. Now, this week already began with more of the same, for fear that the Fed will be forced to rein in its easy-money policy event further. Maybe, maybe not, but recession appears impending regardless. Jeffrey Tucker says the bad news is everywhere, even in the midst of very tight labor markets and very low unemployment, mostly mythical when you consider labor force participation. Companies have started to lay off workers. Why? To prepare for recession and the prospect of more economic chaos ahead. High-flying tech giants are curbing their enthusiasm, too. Facebook apparently got tricked into paying big-time news outlets to let Facebook users have free access to articles no doubt to those that reinforced government propaganda since Mark Zuckerberg volunteered his entire company to be messengers for the regime back in 2020. Well, Facebook got robbed and now is rethinking no more freebies. This might as well be the theme of American life. No more charity, no more kindness, no more doing something for nothing. In inflationary times, everyone becomes more grasping. Morality takes a back seat, and generosity is no more. It's every man for himself. This can only get more brutal. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this was there was something of a psychological break last Friday on news of the Consumer Price Index. It was not better than last month. It was not the same as last month. It was worse, 8.6% year over year, the worst it has been in 40 years. And honestly, everyone sort of knew this already in their heart of hearts, but there's something about the official announcement that codified it. But let's say we stack the data at two years rather than one year. What does it look like? Well, it comes in at 13.6%. And Jeffrey Tucker says, we've never seen anything like that. And it is truly starting to hurt as never before. Gas is above $5. Rents are more than $2,000 a month on average. The raises at work have stopped coming too. On the contrary, employers are expecting more productivity for ever less money in real terms. Now, he says prices have a very long way to go to wash out the paper sloshing around the world economy. And he shows a chart that shows the wave of printing compared with current price trends. The point being, no way this is getting better before it gets much worse. Put it all together, especially with declining financials, along with supply chain breakages and other economic dislocations. This is why it feels like the walls are closing in. It's because they are. And there truly is no way out for anyone at this point. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says no one should be shocked by any of this. It was all in the cards, an outcome guaranteed by ghastly policy over two presidential administrations, all enacted by a government that knows nothing about economics and cares nothing for basic commercial and human rights. You dispense with these things and you court disaster. And this is how you get the worst consumer confidence rating ever recorded. I'm looking at the chart, and look, these charts aren't, uh, you know, this is not... uh, Easy for me to read. It's all Greek to me, but there's no denying which direction that, uh, that chart is turning, that graph is going. Whew. That is intense. Jeffrey Tucker says, what makes today different from the 1970s is the pace at which this is all unfolded. Even a year ago, administration officials were claiming everything would be just fine. And many people believed them, despite every bit of data pointing to exactly the opposite. Truly, it feels like our lords and masters believe that their fantasies are more reality than reality itself. They say it, and somehow it becomes true. Can you imagine that only last month, the Biden administration concocted the idea of establishing a disinformation governance board? It was designed to script the truth to all social media and mainstream media outlets, censoring all dissent. And the plan blew up only because it was too overtly Orwellian for public consumption. But what matters here is the intent, which is nothing short of totalitarian. He says politics is good fun for many people, a real sport and a good distraction from real life. But politics has become very serious business once personal finance makes the good life ever less viable. Right now, everyone's searching for someone to blame, and most people have hit on the old guy in the White House who they somehow believe should do something about all these problems despite a lifelong career of knowing nothing and doing nothing About anything. What an astounding thing to see unfold before our eyes and so quickly. The malaise of 1979 was a long time coming, but the meltdown of 2022 has hit many people like a hurricane that somehow evaded detection from the radar. And yet it might be far from over. In 2020 and following, money appeared like magic in bank accounts all over the country. A third of the workforce had gotten used to languishing at home, pretending to work. Students started Zooming instead of learning. Adults who'd spent a lifetime embracing the normal disutilities of labor gained for the first time a vision of a life of luxury without work. One result was a huge boom in personal savings, if only for a brief time. Some of the money was spent on Amazon, streaming services, and food delivery. But also much of it landed in bank accounts. As people started saving money as never before, most likely because the opportunities to spend on entertainment and travel dried up. Personal savings soared to over 30%. It felt like we were all rich. But that feeling could not last. Once the economy opened up again and people were ready to get out and spend their new riches, a strange new reality presented itself. The money they thought they had was worth far less. Also, there were strange shortages in goods they once took for granted. Their new riches turned into vapor in a matter of months, with each month worse than the previous month. As a result, people had to deplete their savings and turn to debt finance just to keep up with the decline in purchasing power, even as their income in real terms turned dramatically south. In other words, government took away what it gave. Well, he says the long period of denial seems suddenly over. People of all political persuasions are fuming in anger. The crime everywhere these days is not incidental or accidental. It's a mark of civilizational decline. Something has to give and will give at some point. The ruling class in this country and their friends around the world have caused tremendous damage. By the way, he shows what has happened to the purchasing power of the dollar just since 2018. It's astonishing the drop that you can see. And yet, what do our rulers have to say to us? Well, they tell us rely on more wind and sun. That was Janet Yellen's exact words to the Senate last week. And he says the most frustrating aspect of all this rampant failure is the failure to connect cause and effect. The cause should be clear. This was kicked off by the most egregious, arrogant, irresponsible, foolhardy, and brutal policies ever perpetrated on the whole of American life, all in the name of disease control. He says, I've yet to see evidence that any of the people and agencies who did this to us are willing to reassess their decisions. Quite to the contrary. There must be a reckoning, he says. It was not the poor, the working classes, or even the people on the street who did this. These policies were not an act of nature. They weren't even voted on by legislatures. They were imposed by men and women with unchecked administrative power under the mistaken belief that they had it all under control. But they never did. And they do not now. Pretty powerful summary there. I've got a link to Jeffrey Tucker's
0: article in the show notes. Check it out at thebryanhideshow.com. This is the Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for joining us here in this place where we revel in wrong think on a daily basis. Oh, I know it sounds really subversive, but really it's about claiming your own worldview. You know, of course, the biggest flex you can do these days is to think for yourself. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm just here to encourage you to think clearly and independently about the world around us. Our show is made possible by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Now, if you are in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, Heather and her team can help you get the mortgage you're looking for, the loan you need, whether it's a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage. She has the stability, the clout, and decades of experience to help you get that loan without delay. Call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, her office is at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I was thinking about a friend of mine from high school. And uh, the reason I was thinking about him yesterday is uh, he and I, we definitely look at things from some very uh, different vantage points. He's much more progressive in his worldview and and in his politics and I'm I'm not. but one thing I have always admired about him is when he and I have conversations, somehow we can always find some common ground. and I mean we, we really are on, on on the opposite side of so many issues. but I just I appreciate him because to me Scott is proof that uh, you can disagree without having to regard each other as, you know, mortal enemies. And if there was some way to bottle and sell this, man, I would do it. I just think it's healthy. It's funny. I I told him, I said, you know, this is one of the things I've I've always appreciated about you is we can come at these issues from totally different directions, but we can always find some place where we can meet in the middle. And, and it doesn't mean that he has to change his viewpoint and I don't have to change mine. It just means that we have enough respect for each other that it doesn't have to devolve into this, you know, quest for domination. I liked his response. He says, well, I think that really speaks to the fact that despite our differences in perspective, we're both unquestionably brilliant and undeniably attractive, yet humble and totally accessible to the unwashed masses. <laughs> See, And his sense of humor doesn't hurt either. It's <laughs> that is that's good news. So one of the things that uh, that just came up in the course of our, our chat yesterday was uh, is it time for a separation? Is it time for a divorce? Could we possibly you know we, we see America is very, very divided and, and it's you know it's a pretty equal split, generally speaking, red states, blue states. What would it look like if we split? Got an article here from Stephen H. Dawson. This is published on Americanthinker.com. And it raises some interesting possibilities. I know for some people, well, we can't do this. You know, Lincoln made sure we couldn't do this. But I don't think I want to look at the other option, which is that we violently balkanize and then spend time trying to destroy one another. I mean, come on, let's face it. So many people regard politics today as, well, we've got to be involved. We've got to vote. We've got to get the right people in. Not so that they can uphold correct, limited government principles, but so we can destroy those other people because they'll destroy us if they get their hands on power. That's how seriously things have been weaponized. And the crazy, stupid thing about it is both sides are right in the sense that, you know, if their opponents get their hands on that power, they're going to use it to punish whoever's not on their side. How do you get there? Better still, how do you get out of a situation like that? Stephen H. Dawson says, the overwhelming evidence present in the public domain today, strongly suggests that the United States of America will separate into two countries in less than 50 years. So here's the scenario concept. The conservative and progressive sides of America today see each other as a lifeguard and a drowning victim. Neither side will keep the other from drowning when push comes to shove. The only option is for the lifeguard to let go of the drowning victim. This event is the physical separation, and the conceptual separation has been playing out for about three decades. The topics of abortion, gun rights, balanced budgets, central digital bank currencies, uh, immigration, free speech, either alone or together, can all be set aside with the assurance they are not the reasons for the pending dissolution of the country. The single reason for the U.S. going into parts is free choice. Now, the U.S. will not change to a bordered country, such as the Soviet Union, since geography has 50% of its borders surrounded by water and the other 50% absent of both a northern and sub-southern border, rather. Ask Canada and Mexico how immigration control is going for them lately. It's unlikely there will be a mass deporting of citizens due to the risk of those deported coming back with a vengeance, helped by whatever country accepts them. Ask Germany and Russia how that worked out for them during World War II. A recent venture capitalist article indicates how geography, demographics, and capitalism intersect to likely help form the two new countries. Now, a country needs two tangible components in order to survive. Trade and defense. Trade for for all material things necessary to exist both in war and peace. Defense for continuance during and after an armed conflict. Ask any losing side of any conflict how things went for them when they ran out of resources to continue their fight. Now, the loose strategy playing out over the last two to three decades has been to push for the separation of the states. Neither a December 1941 nor a September 2001 type attack will move enough people today to care for and help one another. The division is too great on both sides. And fueling the fire of this division are the many unnamed nations hoping the demise of America is sooner Then later, he says, I'll leave it to you to name them. Both the November 2022 and 2024 elections will be difficult for America. Both the winners and the losers will be unsatisfied and want more from each side. These wants are more splashing in the water between the lifeguard and the drowning victim thought construct, thought construct construct. Something will break in America along the way. And he says, I'm not sure what it will be today, but whatever it is, it will be a no going back event. How do I know? Well, the past 15 years of American history confirm that yesterday is not enough to live tomorrow because effort today does not contain the work necessary to deliver the outcomes required to remain united. Both sides of America today, the conservative and progressive, will be the construct of these two new countries. There's insufficient representation of the remaining segments of America today to form anything close to a self-supporting nation. And it's unlikely they'll be able to grab any land to serve as a colony for any nation existing, either today or tomorrow. He says, American ambivalence is the theme playing out before the world today. It's not a matter of want that prompts me to pen this writing. It's a matter of need. Need driven by the inescapable certainty that a divorce is similar to a lifeguard letting go of a drowning victim. There is no good outcome to either a divorce or a drowning. It's just a matter of living with the consequences. There are regret, and often many what-if thoughts bouncing around for eons. Stephen Dawson says, "I foresee the ambivalence or apathy would get to that ambivalence or apathy would get the job done should I desire to strategize how to end a nation." The world has America today embracing both options, and this embrace is new to America in the past decade. Now he says, "Look, I wish things were different, as I don't desire America to end." However, in the absence of supporting evidence to the contrary, I can only conclude that America will not make it with the disunity it has today. America will either get a kick in its backside beyond anything I can imagine to cause it to want to remain united or be finishing the property settlement of its divorce sooner rather than later. Now, I know that that uh, that can sound really depressing for some people. Oh, man, the country falling apart. What what can we do? I would much rather see a peaceful separation. And yes, that, that means secession. I don't know if it's possible, though. And, and I say that not from the standpoint of because we've got to be united. The union must endure through the ages. I think it's more a matter of there are people who want power, who desire power, and, and more importantly want to control them, you know, the other, and they're just not going to let it go. They'd rather burn the house down, then, uh, you know, have some kind of a divorce settlement in which they lose control of the house. So, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. I don't foresee this being an easy process. I think that already we see some pretty deep divides, right down to the family level. How many people do you know who stopped talking with family members because of, hmm, orange man? I can personally think of, uh, you know, a number of people I know who... You know, I'll never talk to them again. Why? Because they voted for Trump or whatever. All I know is the differences appear to be irreconcilable. I hope that we can work out some kind of uh, uh, a parting of ways that doesn't involve we must first kill massive numbers of one another to decide who's right. In the meantime, my advice is, Don't allow yourself to be defined by your enemy. Don't be enemy-driven in your thinking.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Here's
1: an invite to subscribe to my show notes. I always include lots of links because I assume that if you're looking for a better take on the world around you, you probably have or at least you have the willingness to invest a bit of time and effort into understanding and researching things for yourself. So I link to every article that I share here on this program and encourage you to take the time not only to, to read the articles, but oftentimes they will have great links within. That can take you even further into a subject, and basically the sky's the limit. You can research it as far as you want to go. But it's important that you trust yourself to do that original resource or that, orig- that original research, rather, to look up original sources as often as you can, and again, to trust yourself to be able to put two and two together. I know there's a whole army of fact-checkers out there ready to assist you and to steer you away from things that are dangerous. You don't need them. All you need to do is propaganda-proof yourself, but that requires some personal effort, so let's step up and do it. You know, the federal government these days seems very, very concerned about gig workers. And a gig worker is, well, that's what I do. I'm, I'm a part of the gig economy. I have my own company. With one voice, which refers not just to this voice of mine, but to bringing people together on issues that matter so that we can speak with one voice when it comes to the things that really count. And I do all kinds of uh, I, I do all kinds of freelance work. I can do voice work, I can do writing, I produce shows for other people, I produce my own podcast, I produce audio books, I voice audio books, and I love it it's It's quite a different thing, I mean, for years and years, I was you know all on board of I like the security of that paycheck every other week. I like the benefits, I like the four o one k and i and i do admit I miss the camaraderie of working with you know coworkers in an office setting i've had to, I've had some just wonderful people to rub shoulders with over the years, and I truly miss those opportunities but you know what I really love more is the ability to to more or less chart my own course. I didn't even realize that I was wearing a leash until that leash came off. And with that came, of course, a loss of security, at least to some degree, but it's worth it for the potential to be able to run swiftly and in directions of my own choosing. So not everybody resonates with that. Like I say, for the vast majority of my life, my employee mindset was, look, I just need to find a good job and somebody who I can create value for, who's willing to pay me to you know, to be their employee. Now I'm a gig economy worker. And I don't like that uh, the federal government is looking at me and saying, you know what, Brian, we need to help you and anybody else like you. Thomas L. Knapp, writing for the William Lloyd Garrison Center for Libertarian Advocacy Journalism, reminds us that anti-gig work progressives are not gig workers' friends. He says a new national survey of gig workers in the United States Alex N. Press complains at Jacobin, finds that around one in seven make less than the federal minimum wage. On a range of measures, gig workers report greater economic hardship than W-2 employees in low-wage retail and food service work. And Thomas L. Knapp says, well, why why is this? the, The reasons ought to be obvious. The gig workers, Press notes, are deprived of labor standards that come with employee status. Now, this would include things like wage and hour protections, anti-discrimination laws, workers' compensation, health and safety protections, unemployment benefits, and the right to organize and collectively bargain. But Thomas L. Knapp says, is that really the problem? In fact, is there really a problem at all? He says, I can think of two reasons why gig workers might earn less than employees that don't have anything to do with insufficient government intervention on their behalves. The first reason is, in a word, Choice. Gig workers decide when they work and who they work with. They're not required to punch a 40-hour clock, put in overtime if they're tired or have a date, deal on a minute-by-minute basis with management, etc. In an economy with rock-bottom unemployment with employers almost literally begging on street corners for people to take those low-wage retail and food service jobs that press characterizes as better, gig workers choose to control the means of production themselves instead of knuckling under to wage slavery. He says, by the way, I'm sure I've heard those phrases associated with Jacobin's preferred approach to political economy. They'd rather have, the gig workers would rather have, more personal freedom of choice than make more money. The second reason is opportunity differentials. While it's not true of all gig workers, it's probably true of some. Even in the current low unemployment environment, those low-wage retail and food service jobs are unavailable or they're unattractive to them for some reason. They just can't do the job in the way demanded or perhaps they face prospective wage garnishment for child support, court judgments, tax claims, etc. that would eat up most of their earnings. If I can't flip burgers, but I can deliver them on my bicycle, I'll do the latter rather than the former. If I can earn $5 an hour as a gig worker, perhaps completely under the table, there are ways... Or 7.25 in a low wage, low wage retail and food service job, but some creditor can and surely will seize four dollars an hour of those latter wages. Guess which way I'm going to go. Thomas Snap says in attacking the gig economy, progressives aren't supporting workers and trying to protect them from exploitation. They're attacking workers and trying to force those workers back onto what amounts to an exploitative state-operated plantation where they'll do as they're told and gratefully accept whatever crumbs their progressive masters deem to graciously feed them. Amen. Well said, Thomas L. Knapp. And I've talked to enough gig workers over the last few years that I think he, he is effectively capturing the reasons why they choose not to be an employee. I mean, if you, if you take an Uber ride or a Lyft ride or something like this, Talk to the driver. I I have made it a habit, probably annoyingly so, but every time I have had to take an Uber in the last uh, five years or so, I like to ask the person, what what made you decide to, to drive? And almost every time it comes down to, I just needed to make a little bit of extra money on the side, this gave me the flexibility of being able to do so. I have a reliable car. I have some time on my hands. I want to make a little extra money. And they can do quite well. I mean, if they, if they take care of their passengers, you know, the tips are great. You know, there's wear and tear on the car, but if you got a got a car that's well-maintained and something that uh, you're taking care of, it's a great option to have. And the crazy thing is the more government gets involved, the harder it is to have those, in, those opportunities to get out there and have a side hustle. I mean, I look at uh, the economic news, and, and it's not good news. When you start to see that even big corporations are now starting to slow down hiring or lay people off because they fear that recession is here and, you know, they're, they're tightening their belts, you know, getting ready for it. Doesn't it make sense that maybe it might be a better option to have multiple independent streams of income? That is entirely possible within the gig economy. But it's hard to shake that mindset of, well, but I just, I want a steady job and I want to be somebody's employee. I understand how that goes. That's the majority of my career was spent as an employee. And there is security. You know, you know that at least I can count on a paycheck no matter what. It's a little bit different. You know, as as you small business owners understand, when it comes to providing for yourself or doing your own thing, suddenly 40 hours a week, you think, I wish. I wish. Small business owners, they don't have the luxury of working 40 hours a week, especially those who are starting a business. The number of hours a week that they work is as many as it takes. And it can be years before they actually start to turn a profit. Why would they do that? Because it's worth it to them to have that autonomy. I strongly recommend if you, if you have a skill or if you have something that you enjoy doing as a side hustle, you should consider being part of the gig economy. I'm also going to con- to, to encourage you, resist any urge to uh, even entertain the slightest you know, overtures by some government bureaucrat who says, Well, I'm here to help you by forcing the people you do business with to consider you an employee. Adding to their costs and, of course, adding to the complications of what it takes to to do work with you. What do you think is going to happen when those kind of mandates come down? They're going to say, screw this, and the job will go away. Yeah, we can't let that happen.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: And thank you to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, they're not just online. This is a brick-and-mortar business located on South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Terrific news for anybody in southern Utah or the surrounding region. Because when it comes to sewing machines and uh, long-arm quilting machines and embroidery and all the supplies and service and training to know how to use those machines, it's all right there in one place in a family-owned business that's Sewing and Quilting Center. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. Uh, This place has been in uh, continuous operation since 1984. I believe they're the third owners of the business. But if, if if you know someone who's into sewing, you understand this is such a huge thing. This is not just, oh, yes, it's a little small niche of hobbyists. There are people who take this very, very seriously and for good reason. I mean, you can do some amazing things with today's computerized machines. And it doesn't have to break the bank for under $200. You can get a very solid entry-level sewing machine. If you're really into it, though, and you really want to do some magnificent creations, I mean, you can go all the way to where the sky's the limit on those, you know, very, very professional long-arm quilting machines. Bottom line, though, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. You want to check it out? You want to really see what's available and what the possibilities are? These are the folks to help you do that. I don't know if you feel it, but with all the, the challenges and all the, the trouble that we see around us, for some people, there is almost a call to action. And it's different for every person. It's not, uh, you know, just a drumbeat of what? Someone disagrees? Let's get out there and, you know, wave the flags and chant and and otherwise, you know, let's let's get out there and make us stink. I think it's a much more personal thing. I saw this recent article by Alan Stevo that just grabbed me because it talks about walking in your authority. And Alan Stevo has some very powerful motivation to be diligent in your duty to yourself and to your family. The title of this piece is, I feel like my unborn grandchildren are saying, please fix this. Check this out. He says, wildland firefighters carry fire shelters that they can use when trapped in a forest fire. The shelter protects them from the heat of a fire, and it can save a firefighter's life. While using a fire shelter is a lifesaver, it's certainly a last resort because the end result is far from a perfect outcome. To use a fire shelter, the firefighter lies on the ground and covers himself up under the fire shelter. And the shelter reflects the heat, but not perfectly. So the firefighter may roast slowly like a baked potato, only he's a living man experiencing that, and hopes that he lasts until the fire passes. Now, as you might imagine, the firefighter may endure tremendous pain, and that pain can all be ended very, very quickly by simply lifting his shelter and taking a deep breath of superheated air. Given the extreme pain he may, he may endure and the ease with which he can give up, firefighters receive psychological training in order to prepare them for the possibility of using a shelter. As a firefighter slowly and painfully endures, sometimes for two minutes, sometimes for three hours, based on how long it takes the fire to pass, in such a moment of despair, he's trained to stay focused on someone in his life who he needs to stay alive for. Often that is his children. He's trained to realize how much that tortured battle in the fire shelter is psychological and what a motivator our children can be. Now, Alan Stevo brings this up. Because one of his readers, a lion, a warrior, shared with him a source of motivation that moves her to action in the fight against health mandates and in other areas of life. And she's the one who said, I feel like my unborn grandchildren are saying, please fix this. She said it that simply. She said it almost shyly. Despite that hesitancy, it was clear that she meant every word. And Alan Stevo says how powerfully that statement sat with me. Have you ever been there? He says, Of course you have. If you fight, it is only because you have a reason. Alternately, have you ever said, Why am I doing any of this? Have you ever felt compelled to give up? See, that too is always an option. You have the power and the right to give up any time you want. But Alan Stevo's message is don't. You're closer to victory than you realize. He says, fight hard, fight obedient to your values, and one day victory will spring up on you as this increasingly totalitarian regime ends, just like every totalitarian regime in history has ended. It just suddenly collapses on a random day of the week, on a random day of the year, that no one would ever have expected the whole massive, all-powerful government to topple. That is how totalitarian regimes have always ended. They just suddenly collapse. And at the same time, when the stakes are high, as they are in this era, we must keep in mind that the potential, pain, the potential gains rather are great, but the potential losses are even worse. So what he's saying here is losing will be very destructive, so we must win. So he says, let us look soberly at the plan being publicly spoken about for us. He says, let's take a moment to reflect on what is planned for you. A plan that will become a reality if you let it. Let's take a moment to reflect on the stakes. In the midst of that unprecedented high stakes game, let's take a moment to reflect on who it is you choose to surround yourself with. So here's where we are. And man, he's blunt about this. They want to kill you, that would be the ruling class. They want you to die. You mean so little to them that they can't be bothered to run a blind test on the medicine they're pushing upon billions of people. Did you get that? It's not incompetence. They want you to die. They want you to die. Yes, he says, the law of unintended consequences is real. Yes, government is constantly overstepping its ability and messing things up. And government is also being quite intentional in bringing consequences upon you, which you would not wish upon yourself. Yes, there are unintended consequences. But chalking everything up to unintended consequences excuses the greatest evil. The greatest villains would love you to chalk everything up to unintended consequences. Doing so that gives them far more leeway to operate, undeterred, by the likes of you. And it goes far beyond incompetence. There are people pulling the levers of power who want you to die. And if they cannot have that, well, then they want you living like a serf, tied to the land, owning nothing, having just enough to be satisfied, docile, easy to control. And they want your children and grandchildren to have the same. Now, from here, he goes into what the price of gas explains about this. He must live in California because he says I paid 779 a gallon for gas last night. You might live in a more sane place. You may have paid the equally insane price relative to your neck of the woods of 479, 579 or 679. Now he says, I'm not particularly troubled about the 779 being so expensive. I chose where I live. I understood when I moved here that it would be outrageously expensive and artificially inflated by nonsense regulation. But he says that price of gas is not a mistake. Sleepy Joe is not a mistake. The dithering old man is not going to be escorted out the door just before everything turns around. He is a figurehead of a thoroughly corrupt bureaucracy. And he comes right out and calls it as he sees it. It is malice. It is intentional. The year is not 1958 anymore, nor is it 1973, nor even 2019. We are no longer in the days when we still had a semblance of belief that a public official was taking a job for the purpose of serving the public. And he reiterates, they want you to die. They really want you to die. Do you understand that? He says they can't be bothered to search the Internet for any of the 14 pre-2020 journal articles of randomized control trials that show face masks do not work. That takes all of 15 seconds of effort on scholar.google.com. And it takes all of 45 seconds to read each abstract. It takes all of 10 minutes to read all 14 abstracts for want of 10 minutes of concern from a few dozen global decision makers. Millions have perished. Did you get that? Let me repeat. He says for want of 10 minutes of concern from a few dozen global decision makers, millions have perished. How many excuses do you need to keep making for bad, bad people in order to continue your fairy tale that this is not by design, that this is not by intent At some point, one loses the ability to claim ignorance. He says, what has your doctor done for the last two years? He goes, I'll tell you what your doctor's done for the last two years. Two years of gently chastising the unmasked for 45 minutes a week. Two years of yelling at the unmasked for 15 minutes a week. Two years of ranting to friends, family, and colleagues about the unmasked for 60 to 90 minutes a week. Two years of social media posts and comments about the unmasked for 60 to 90 minutes a week. Your doctor spent hundreds of minutes a month these past two years ridiculing people but could not be bothered to spend 10 minutes to figure out what he was actually talking about. Do you understand the amount of contempt it takes to be one of the most scientifically educated and credentialed members of a society and to decide to use your education and credentials that way? He says that amounts to your doctor spending thousands of minutes over the past two years showing he hates you, rather than ten minutes to check if you might be right. Your own doctor loathes you and wants you dead. The nurse loathes you and wants you dead. The hospital administrator loathes you and wants you dead. Do you understand that?
0: We'll come back to Alan Stevo's commentary in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back sharing
1: this commentary from Alan Steve. Oh Man, this is some bold stuff, and I'll oh, grant you, some people may still shake their heads in disbelief and go, I, I don't believe it. They want me dead. You know, the crazy thing is I remember reading years and years ago about how certain globalists, and, and, you know, this could be the Rockefellers or something, I don't even remember where I read it. It could have been in a John Birch Society uh, publication, you know, 30 years ago. But it was very clear, even back then, there is a certain segment of the global bureaucracy, some elected, many of them not elected, who has said for a long time that in order to have sustainable development of this planet, we need to get the vast majority of people off this earth. 7 billion, 8 billion people, that is way too many. They're talking something more along the lines of under a billion, probably closer to 500 million people. Now, the thing they don't ever come clean on is, how exactly do you propose that the rest of those uh, unwanted souls exit the planet? I don't know if you've ever heard of the, uh, what are they called? They're, they're some kind of stones, almost like a, it's almost like a little Stonehenge monument in Georgia. But it, it lists some of the goals of these, these globalists. And one of their big goals is depopulating the globe. Getting, you know, the human population down to a sustainable level. So if you're tempted to say nobody wants people to die, I would say maybe you should do a little bit to deeper dive into this. I think the average person, yeah, we, I don't want people to die. You don't want people to die. But people who are in very powerful positions who are used to exercising that power without any accountability, without being challenged, you know, they've actually been pretty open about some of their goals for a very long time. This is to say nothing of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, and you will own nothing and be happy. They have it all planned out. And if you think that your best interests are a consideration there, no, that's not the case. Alan Stevo says what even the best schools and school boards in the country have said about the topic of uh, of masks and and keeping you under control. He says your child's school wants to drug them, put them in front of a screen and confuse them about the most basic, basic rather and healthy aspects of their lives, gender, sexuality, biology. When your daughter is raped in the school, they will lie to you as a father in public about what happened and then the police will tackle and arrest you if you decide at that very late hour to stand up to the system. You practically deserve to be tackled and arrested for not standing up, but for waiting so long to stand up. He says if you you need to have your daughter raped to realize how bad things are for you, you, sir, are waiting too long. See, Scott Smith of Loudoun County, Virginia, had an experience like that. And to add insult to injury, there's a very good chance that any rape of a child in school will happen at the hands of a teacher, administrator, or staff member. Yet some seem to prefer to live oblivious of this reality of the educational system when you send your children into it day by day. If gunmen trap your children in a building, authorities will tackle and arrest you if you try to protect them. Uvalde, Texas showed that. But so have dozens of other examples of mass murder in schools perpetrated at the hands of products of those schools. Far from being a legitimate repudiation of an inanimate object like a gun, such attacks are a logical repudiation of the schools. They have failed. They hate you. And your children do not belong in them. If you need to be outside getting tackled by police with your kid trapped inside by a gunman, then you're waiting too long. Angelie Rose Gomez of Uvalde, Texas learned that the hard way. So did the parents who were pepper sprayed by police or thrown to the ground. Gomez, after being detained by police, was able to get herself released to get into the school a different way and to free her children from the place where police and gunmen were, in effect, cooperating to keep them cornered and separated from the safety of their parents. Other parents in Uvalde did not fare as well. A parent cannot single-handedly prevent all school shootings. A parent does have tremendous power to prevent all school shootings that could affect his family, though. You see what he's saying? Each parent each morning decides whether to send a child to a place where the sickest and most dangerous things occur or to keep a child safely in the proximity of parents. I'm sorry, this makes me think of a Babylon Bee headline I saw the other day. New study shows homeschool children may miss out on opportunity to become gay communists. (laughs) It just struck me as hmm. Ouch, I want to laugh, but that, that one actually hits uh, hits pretty close to home here. Alan Stevo says, If your child desires to permanently alter his body, even if for a short phase, various counselors will whisper all kinds of nonsense into the child's ear. They'll dose your child with powerful drugs and will have you arrested for child abuse if you do not support it. Your child will be removed from your home and placed in foster care. Abigail Martinez had, had something like that happen to her. And then her daughter committed suicide by kneeling in front of a train. He says it's not about changing the school board. Nearly everyone at every level of your child's school hates your values, hates you, and hates any version of your child that resembles you in any way. Changing the school board is a good start. And if that change is sustained, it may lead to change some years from now. But changing the school board will not fix that in time to save your child they would rather have your child dead than to let you have a child that resembles you and grows up with a happy life built around the values that have long worked to prosper humanity. Rather than that life, they would rather have your child dead. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand how much they hate you? Alan Stevo says, if you did... You would never see that doctor again. You would never honor a single word from that politician again. You would not let the lies of the media fall on your ears again, and you would not leave your children alone in a school again. He says ignorance explains only so much, not just in the other guy's action, but also in your action. Like the doctor, like the public health official, at some point you cannot claim innocence. At some point you cannot keep ignoring the problem. At some point, it becomes negligence. At some point, it even becomes malice. At some point, you are to blame. No amount of finger-pointing will change that. No amount of elections will change that. You can be negligent in your duty over yourself and your family, or you can be diligent. Either way, you are the responsible one. You can only blame others for so long. And he says, I have some really good news, like really, really good news. The good news is that you are winning. And now the bad news. Well, the bad news is that you're probably missing your win and that you're probably positioning yourself in a way that all but guarantees that you will give all that you hold dear, hold dear rather to your sworn enemies. This is despite the fact that you have a well-earned victory all prepared, simply waiting for you to reach out and grab it. He says, have you ever heard the statement, you are your own worst enemy? Well, he says, if you're not recognizing this period for what it is, You are playing exactly that role. In that complacency, in the belief that everyone involved is a good faith actor, you are snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. He says you can win this, but you just need to walk in your authority. And I don't know if I've heard that phrase before, walk in your authority, but I like the sound of it. And, and it's, it's not, you know, this self-aggrandizing. That's right. I am a law unto myself, and therefore whatever I say goes. It's more a matter of understanding that you have autonomy, and in order to honor that autonomy, you've got to you know who you are. You've got to know what you stand for. And nobody is going to give you permission to go out there and be a free person. You've got to respect your autonomy and cherish it enough that you step up and find the willpower to make your feet start moving on their own, instead of waiting for some starter gun or somebody else to to give you the command. You may now begin to walk. I don't know why that's hard for people. And and I'll, I'll take a point of mild disagreement here with with Alan Stevo. I believe there are some people within the public school system who really do have those uh, those deep um, malice motivated you know ideas. To, to change children and to basically pervert them from whatever their parents have been trying to raise them to become. I mean, I see it occasionally. I do think it's the exception. I think that most teachers and even most administrators within the system are, are probably people who are there to make a difference in their students' lives. And I say this because my wife is a public school teacher. I see the amount of sacrifice and work that she puts into what she does. Now, having said that, she and I still have some very strong disagreements on you know, the, the system itself. I think the system itself, by virtue of being a compulsory system, is uh, setting up a situation in which those uh, people filled with malice are much freer to act and to do what they do with impunity than I would like. But I do agree with Alan Stevo that if you have concerns, well, I'm worried about, you know, the prospect of my kid being in a school shooting, or I'm worried about my kid being indoctrinated and persuaded that, hey, maybe you're trans too. If you have those concerns, if you are concerned that uh, someone may be vying to, uh, to take your child's mind or otherwise put your child at risk, do you have the courage to pull your child out of such a system? I mean, I can't answer that question
0: for you, but I know who the serious people are because they're the ones who do exactly that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.